the process of engagement, the process of respecting that what people are providing to us is deeply meaningful and connected to them. My whole approach to my research has been completely transformed by this process. I know. Really? Absolutely. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hi, and welcome to episode 52 of the Genomics Podcast. I'm Paul Broman, your host and scientific affairs lead at Illumina. Our podcast features interviews with scientific and clinical experts who discuss their breakthroughs in science and medicine and genomics. Genomics technologies, especially next-generation DNA sequencing, or NGS, have revolutionized our understanding of the links between genotype and phenotype. We've talked about that a lot on this show, but to put it in simple terms, it means that scientists using these technologies have gotten really quite good at identifying DNA sequence changes, or variants, across the entire human genome. And they're also getting better at understanding how these variants are linked to human biology, or health, or even human disease. But to ensure that all people equally benefit from this science, we need a fuller picture of human genetic diversity. And that means we really need to study DNA from all human populations and from all over the world. Unfortunately, some underrepresented communities have a cynical or even hostile attitude towards health researchers. That's often due to a really sad legacy of poor research practices. So to talk about this issue, I'm joined by Professor Simon Eastill. Simon is Executive Director of the National Center for Indigenous Genomics at the Australian National University. Listen to Simon explain how harnessing the science of DNA in close collaboration with Indigenous Australian communities, can improve the health and well-being of Australia's first peoples. So for those of us who are not intimately familiar as you are with Indigenous populations here in Australia, can you start our podcast by kind of introducing these populations? Who are these folks? And tell us about the history of Indigenous populations in Australia. So I wouldn't like to speak on behalf of Indigenous Australians, but... There are many different kinds of Indigenous people in Australia. There are two very distinct kinds of Indigenous Australians. The, the Aboriginal people who have lived on all parts of the mainland of Australia, on Tasmania and some of the surrounding islands for many tens of thousands of years. And then quite distinctly, there are Torres Strait Islanders who are from the islands between the mainland Australia and the island of New Guinea to the north. People have been here for a very long time and unlike many parts of the world, the origin stories in Australia do not include people coming from elsewhere. So there's a sense that people have always been here because people have been here for so long. There's been a long continuous history of occupation. And so as a result of that, there is great diversity linguistically, culturally, and Undoubtedly, although we don't have the full picture yet in terms of genome diversity. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of your organization? Why did ANU feel the need to create this Aboriginal genomics institution now? 
Well, the center grew out of a pre-existing collection of material that we have here. There are tens of thousands of samples from populations from this part of the world, Oceania, um, Southeast Asia, and so on. Are these biological samples? Biological samples in, in either liquid nitrogen or, or minus 80 freezers. They were collected from the 1960s and 70s onwards. Included amongst that were 7,000 samples from indigenous Australians. And we wanted to do something with these. It was unclear how to proceed because of the changes in views about this kind of research in the 1990s in particular. We put a, a voluntary moratorium on any further work and we then sought to engage with indigenous communities to ask them what we should do. But in 2011, we asked an external body of indigenous people outside the university, eminent people, to advise, make recommendations to the university on what to do. And they provided a set of eight recommendations. And they were extremely interested and excited about the prospect of this collection. They saw it as having immense, not just scientific, but also cultural and historical importance. The university accepted those recommendations and the center grew out of as a means of implementing them. The primary recommendations were that there be indigenous oversight and governance of the process and that we go back and talk to all of the communities that this material was came from and ask them what, what to do. The mission of the centre is to, is to create an enduring source of genomic information, related information that would be important to the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We have two main projects. We are doing long read assemblies and we have four of those. We're doing those around the country to address the question of when we do our read mapping, whether that improves the quality of the read mapping that we do. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we're doing is uh, establishing reference panels for uh, populations from oh, around the country. Oh, that's interesting. Are there other similar institutes or initiatives like the one that you just described in any other parts of the world? I mean, have you? is there anything that you could model your organization on? And then conversely, from what you've learned in interacting with indigenous populations, is there anything that you can share with other institutes on, on how to do this right? Well, first of all, there are other initiatives, but I think that we may be distinctive in the sense that we're not primarily focused on clinical service delivery or on research in relation to a specific project, a specific research question, be it either about anthropology and history or medicine and health, we're focused on the data and the relationship between the data, the sample and the person and the community of people who gave those samples. So where our focus is on creating a resource that will underpin in an appropriate way with community leadership research into any area at all with appropriate access. Oh, that is interesting. So it's kind of like you're building an infrastructure. Yes, that's right, exactly. And the key to all of that has been the establishment of the Indigenous Board, and quite unique, I think. The Australian National University is a Commonwealth entity. That's the Commonwealth of Australia. It's a federal entity established under an act of federal parliament. And the Council of the University is able to make statutes that have the force of federal law. Wow. And we are unique in the university in being the only organizational part. There are statutes about conferral of degrees and establishment of student residences and so on. We're the only unit within the university that is established under a statute. We are a statutory body within the university. We have federal statutory powers 
and the powers that statute gives the Indigenous Majority Board the custodianship of all material, including data, in our collection. I was going to ask you about that. Who owns this material? So the ownership issue is a complicated one, as it is around the world. What we've done is provide a framework that can address the very real concerns of people, that they have a sense of connection and ownership and rights that have some legal foundation without having to go through the complex process of changing intellectual property policies within the institution and also going through an act of parliament to that's change a the, That would be a heavy lift. That would be a heavy yeah. lift and that might happen over time. But in the meantime, we have legally backed framework that gives Indigenous governance and control over the process. That gives, if you like, legal weight to our statements to people that Indigenous people are in charge of decision-making. They are very really with legal accountability in charge of decision-making. Wow, that's wonderful. So uh, we've done a few podcasts talking with people who are doing GWA studies, for example, in the context of African populations, which are genetically very diverse. And one of the things I've learned is that most of these GWA studies that have been done have focused almost exclusively on cohorts of European ancestry. And in terms of, you know, there are a number of population-based sequencing initiatives, genomic sequencing initiatives that also are focusing on these types of cohorts. So what is the scientific community potentially missing when we focus primarily, or in some cases exclusively, on only understanding the genetic diversity of European descendants? A number of things. First of all, in terms of rare diseases and generally rare mutations that are associated with those, those tend to be different in different parts of the world. So we can't assume that we have a full understanding of rare diseases by just studying Europeans or indeed other parts of the world, we have to study people here in order to understand that. There's been a lot of interest recently in polygenic risk scores from uh, adding up from large numbers of small individual risks from different genetic loci and the clearly uh, naive approach to applying those elsewhere is completely unjustified. There are adjustments and we've been looking at that in ways in which you can adjust that to local conditions. But really, in both of those contexts and in other contexts as well, in terms of the effect of modifiers on, in a rare disease context, the clinical presentation may be quite different and so on and so forth. There's a whole range of things from a, um, a medical or a health perspective that require you to know about people directly rather than making inferences about them from knowledge gained elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think the key message is that this cannot be done simply as an add-on. You can't just say, well, we'll include some people of this kind in our studies. It involves having to deal with the particular requirements of people who have been very badly treated in the past, who are not readily willing to engage in research and who, have, a lot, frankly, have a lot of higher priorities in their lives. Than right. Can you talk about some of the technology that you're using to mine this or to create this genetic data? I know you had mentioned you're, you're doing a long-read sequencing project and you're building reference panels. So can you talk a little bit about the technology? So we, for the long-read assemblies, we're using Chromium 10X and PacBio as well as the Oxford Nanopore technologies. And then we're also working with Illumina to develop designer chips for validation purposes. Oh, that would be like an indigenous Australian chip? That's right, yes. Oh, we, wow. yeah. And there are two purposes there. One is just as a check both as a, a quality check on SNP calling, but also identity check on samples being sequenced, but also, as you say, it can be used as a chip for, for investigative purposes as Interesting. well. Interesting. 
And then we use X10 Illumina sequencing for the routine short reads on PCR-free libraries. And you're doing whole genome sequencing on these? Yeah, we're doing whole genome sequences. We're currently working with four communities, and we have about a 1,000 consents. We're busy sequencing through that. We have four long read assemblies. The short read sequencing, we've done about approaching 200. And there must be some discussion at some level on how a better understanding of indigenous Australian genomics can positively impact these communities. So how do you engage with those communities to ensure their input and participation? I think you already kind of discussed that, but I guess what I'm asking is, what are some of the positive impacts for these communities and how do you communicate that to them? Well, the very process itself, if it's done right, is positive. And so we don't go to a community unless we're invited. We start by asking people how we should talk to them, who should we talk to, how should we go about this, and then tell them what we are, what we have. And we may go back uh, half a dozen times before we even start to talk about consent and and research. So there's a, a substantial educational exercise We've just written up an account of an engagement with one community. It's taken about 16 months altogether. There have been about a dozen visits back and forth. People come here. We bring elders here for a period of time. We go into the communities for extended periods. We have to talk to organizations. We have to talk to elders groups. We talk to traditional owners. We talk to individual families and so on. And so it's a very elaborate. So the entire community is involved in this process. And decision-making can vary from place to place. So just that engagement has been enormously rewarding and has brought people together and created benefits in itself. Has that surprised you that that's been one of the outcomes of this effort or did you really expect that? I didn't expect that, but it's quite moving to be involved. And I have to confess, I don't go to the communities myself very as nearly as often as I'd would like to. We have a community engagement coordinator called Azure Hermes, who's just wonderful, and she does most of that work. But we try to take students, postdocs, researchers, collaborators to the field so that they can understand the community perspective as much as we possibly can. And as I say, we bring people here, and we'd like to grow that whole process. Our approach is to take guidance from the community, but we obviously explain the potential And it relates back to the issues we were talking about before in terms of particularly in rare diseases, but also in in terms of predictive disease management, uh, monitoring of health state and so on. All of those things come in into the picture over time. We went out with a clear intention of focusing on health and medical research. And perhaps not surprisingly, there has been enormous interest in the potential to identify relationships between people, not necessarily other parts of the world, but between individuals and between communities and how the people are related deep back through time. That's come from the community. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, along those lines, I recently did a podcast with a an investigator named Eske Villerslav. Yes, yes, I know Eske. And he's uh, just an amazing guy, and he's doing ancient human genomics and you know, in doing some research for that podcast, I found out that there are upwards of about 10 million people who have actually sent their their own biological samples to a private company yes. to get information about their ancestry. And so this is a, a really important thing. This deeper understanding of the genomics of the indigenous Australian population 
can that similarly help with an understanding of the migration of the development of these communities over time? Absolutely it can, but our approach is based on the premises that this is their story. Right. And so we are not interested in telling them what their story is. We want to know what they want to know. We will work with them in developing that. So they want to control their own narrative, their own history. Yes, and if and our experience is that if you do it that way, they're very receptive to understanding, the idea being that this is a complement to traditional ways of knowing rather than a better way of right. knowing, and that they own this, that this is their story. So you really laid out a nice narrative about some of the benefits for the indigenous populations. How about for the rest of us? Well, one is, I think, is fairly obvious. The other one is less obvious. The one that's fairly obvious is that there is the opportunity for discovery of rare variants that are potentially useful in leading to development of new therapies. There are rare variants of pathogenic variants in the, these and other populations of people who have not been well studied that may lead to further development towards understanding the biology of pathology and development of therapeutics. That has to be done the right way, and we are working on models by which people can not feel like they're being mined for right. variation, and that they, yeah. that they have some sense of ownership of that process, and that's a, that is a very tricky issue, as you'd appreciate. The less obvious benefit is that we do things in a better way. The process of engagement, the process of respecting that what people are providing to us is deeply meaningful and connected to them. I think if you probed deep enough, you'd find a lot of people, other people think that way. My whole approach to my research has been completely transformed by this process. I know, really? Absolutely. I no longer see samples as resources or commodities that are there to write grants and do research on. They are representations of the people that provided them. And so that level of respect and engagement with people so that they understand what a part of them or a part of their deceased relative has provided to the world in terms of a resource for research, that connection back, I think, is something that we can all learn a lot from. This work has not been straightforward. There's not been a template for how you go about doing this, and there have been surprises. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to face in, in creating this infrastructure here? So from a technology point of view, as I mentioned before, it, it's about data management. The data management systems for this kind of data are not well developed in this country. And we have um, hardware resources, we have software, but actually managing, curating the data in a way that makes them perpetually useful is, I think, our major challenge. That's our major technical challenge. We're not doing this as a research project which has an end and then we deposit the data in dbGaP or EGI, whatever, that we, this is a resource that is intended to be continually used. Setting up the um, information or the ICT infrastructure, the data infrastructure, the software infrastructure to support that. The other big challenge is to maintain, to improve the sample collection of material to an extent that I think is needed through automation. Those have been the two main technical challenges. You know, looking at the future, five or ten years from now, or in this case, since you're building the infrastructure, even longer than that, longer time frame, 
you know, what excites you about this? What excites you about the project? What are you hoping for the future? What do you hope this resource becomes? I mean, what, what does success look like five to 10 years from now? Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think in order to answer that question, uh, you have to make a prediction about what the world generally is going to look like <laughs> in that right. time, which is increasingly difficult to do. <laughs> One hopes that if you look at this in, in a clinical context, that the way that genomic and other related kinds of data will be used is that they will be provided as a report to clinicians without them having to worry too much about the details of how that came. So that there's a, I think medical practice will be transformed by becoming increasingly a data science exercise. And that the challenge then is that people are not marginalized by being excluded from that process. So the answer to your question is what I would hope is that we're able to build the trust we're able to build the connections, we're able to get the inclusion, we're to build the training and education so that the indigenous people of this country and disadvantaged people around the world, as an extension of that, are able to fully participate in that and be part of it and benefit from it so that there is specific knowledge about them that's useful as included in that process. I think that's an amazing legacy, and I, I think that's a great place to wrap up. As a scientist, it's very encouraging to hear how these partnerships that you've built have benefited the research but then on the other hand, these partnerships have also informed your research and, and helped you to really see a bigger picture. So Absolutely. I think it's really wonderful. So thank you thank very you much very for your much. time. Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Well, thanks very much. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. And if you liked what you heard today, why not subscribe to the Genomics Podcast? We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Jean-Francois Bripson. He's president and chief executive officer of French diagnostics company PathoQuest. We'll be discussing NGS-based metagenomics approaches for infectious disease detection and for quality control testing of biologic drugs. Right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.